couple years ago, I decided to rewatch the the Lord of the Rings uh, over a Christmas break. Uh, they were originally released around Christmas time, so me and my family used to would go Christmas evening and, and watch the movies together. So it was always kind of a time where I'd want to watch these these films. Um, I love the themes of redemption and hope and, and friendship kind of woven through Tolkien's books. Uh, many would say that the Lord of the Rings is a Christian or a Catholic allegory. Tolkien himself was a Catholic. There's the cross bearer or the ring bearer, Frodo Baggins, on his way to take the ring to Mount Doom. The loyal disciple. Samwise Gamgee, who would walk alongside Frodo on his journey. There is Aragorn, the true king who has the power to release the dead from their curse. There is Gandalf with his death and his resurrection and transfiguration, pictures a, a Christ figure. Christian fans of the book series could offer myriads of examples of how this portrays, relates to Christianity. For example, the elfish word for waybread is limbus, which means life bread or bread of life. Uh, connecting it to the Eucharist. The ring was destroyed on March 25th in the book, which is the same book of the day of the announcement of the incarnation of Jesus and his crucifixion according to Catholic doctrine. Well, a couple years ago when I was watching the end of this film, my lovely wife sat next to me. Now, mind you, I'd, I had already invested nine hours over two weeks in these movies, and my wife sat down next to me in the last 15 minutes and started asking me questions. Who is that guy? What's up with the ring? Why is he getting into the boat? It went on for about 10 minutes, and my wife knew what she was doing. After 10 minutes, she graciously said, I am annoying you, aren't I? And I graciously replied, yes, you are. Please be quiet. I am not a super fan of the, of the series, but the more I learn of The Lord of the Rings, the more intrigued I become. Fascinating literature paved the way for fascinating movies. But what was the goal of Tolkien's writing? Was it, just, was it to offer a Christian allegory, or was it just to have people get lost in an adventure? Friends battling the forces of evil. If it's a Christian allegory, who is the Christ figure? Now, we may not be able to ask those questions to J.R.R. Tolkien today, but there's a fascinating 13-minute interview that you can watch where the interview asks those questions about, about God and power and evil in his books. It's a, the brief interview reveals the authorial intent, the true meaning of the book. Now, I searched and searched, scoured the Internet for a behind-the-scenes interview with the Apostle John, and I could not find it. There is no secret interview of the Apostle John explaining what the millennium is. And even though we may not have the ability to have a Q&A with the Elder John, it doesn't mean that we are left in the dark. God has given us 66 books inspired by his Holy Spirit. Throughout the ages, theologians have rested on the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, which means that the, the Scripture is a plain book and can be understood by man. Peter has said in his second epistle that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So today, we enter into the last bit of Revelation. Some of you may feel like my wife entering into the end of the Lord of the Rings. You have no idea what's going on, and you're just asking a bunch of questions. Some of you may be like the Lord of the Rings superfans, and have thought and studied deeply on the millennium and biblical prophecy. 
So just to let you know, my goal here today is not to answer every one of your questions on the millennium or to give you a lecture on the various interpretations. Here is my hope. My hope that through this message that you will love the, more, the Lord Jesus more, that you would desire to be more obedient to him, that you'd be fully convinced of his plan and his desire to bring his gospel throughout the world. I pray, as Titus 2 says, that, that you would desire to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-right, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us for all lawlessness, to, to make a people for himself, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So my goal for this sermon is like my goal for every sermon, is to make you love the Lord more. And that being said, there are three main views as we enter this passage of the millennium. We have premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Premillennial means that Christ will return before a thousand-year reign on the earth. They're slightly different. There's a post, a premillennial, post-trib, premillennial, pre-mill, uh, pre-trib. There's several different versions there. I'm not going to go into detail. Uh, if you want to, to learn more about that, feel free to um, talk to Pastor Gary. Uh, post-millennial means that Christ is going to come back after a thousand-year reign on the earth. Really, Christ is going. The church is going to usher in. This reign, Gary mentioned the Puritans. The Puritans believed in a post-millennial view of the end. Uh, the amillennial view, meaning that Christ is reigning now, and we are in the millennium. We are in the age of the church, and Christ will come back at the end of the age. Now, whatever view you hold, all of them are orthodox, meaning that they are all acceptable in uh, the biblical revelation of, of, in church history. Um, personally, as I've been studying the last several weeks, I've been kind of teetering between premillennial and amillennial, right? And this is the great thing about a sermon is that you have to get up and tell people what you believe and what you think the text is saying. So just the, this week alone, I have waffled back and forth on different versions that give you any kind of idea of how hard sometimes it is to, to understand biblical doctrine. For what it's, for what it's worth, this morning... I want to share why I think Revelation 20 is most consistent with an amillennial view, right? And why I think that matters for us is how we live out our, our faith. Now, although I believe eschatology is important, that's why we're studying this topic, I don't believe it's something we should break fellowship over. Uh, as I said, I, I wrestled deeply over the text over these last several weeks and have bounced back, back and forth about these things. So if any of you can find an interview on the Apostle John and explain what he really meant by this, I'm happy to, to listen to that. Well, let's just dive into this text. Now, I know you're looking at the time and your watch, and you're looking at the number of points that I have. Just to let you know that I'm going to only do two points today, and we're only going to cover the first uh, six verses. The first one is the restricting of Satan. The restricting of Satan. There are key aspects when you look at this text that every position of how you handle the millennium has to account for. The first aspect is, is what does the, the restricting or the binding of Satan mean? So go back in your text, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
so John sees an angel coming down from heaven and holding in his hand as a key to the bottomless pit. The picture is very similar in the book of Revelation to Revelation 9.1. John sees the star or an angel fall from heaven after the fifth trumpet is blown. Uh, the key to the abyss is probably referring to the same key that Jesus mentioned in Revelation 1.18. If you remember way back, he had the key of death and Hades. The ultimate power over death belongs to God. I was thinking about the New City Catechism as we memorized as a church a few years back. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not alone, but we belong both body and soul in life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. This angel comes and seizes Satan and throws him into the pit. Uh, we see Satan identified by all his names here. The dragon, the ancient serpent, thinking of the garden, the devil, the sa Satan, the accuser of the brethren. So the quick question is, is when and to what extent is Satan bound? Now, when I first studied this, I was always a pre-millennial, pre uh, classical premillennialist, And this issue I always struggled with. And the struggling, what does this binding mean? I think now, I think that the, the, I believe that Satan was bound at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pinnacle event of all of history. Jesus would say this himself, all the law, all the prophets are written about me, right? About what? His death, burial, and, and resurrection. That Jesus Christ made a way to God through the gospel. He died in the place of sinners and was raised for our justification. Revelation 12 shares how Jesus, after his resurrection, Satan was thrown down from heaven and then wreaks havoc on the church because his time is short. Now, why do I think this, what does this binding mean? Well, in, during Jesus' ministry, Jesus was accused of being the devil, right? He was called Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He said to his accusers in Matthew 12, you'll see it on the screen, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him. And so the man spoke and saw all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How then, or how, can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says, I came into Satan's house and I have bind him. So the power of God would be manifested to his people. We know that throughout the, the, the New Testament, this is why I struggle with the view, is that Satan is very actively opposed to God's people. So we read this most clearly seen in 2 Corinthians 4. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled for those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. The adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, we can't deny that the, the devil is active in our world. We can see sin and um, destruction everywhere we look. And although he is active, hear me, he cannot deceive all the nations, for people are 
from, are coming to Christ from every tribe, every nation, every people, and language. The church is called to make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. And beloved, that is exactly what is happening. There are people going to every tribe and tongue and language, presenting the gospel of Christ, and their eyes are open. They hear and believe and come and bow before Christ. God's people are preaching the gospel and people are being saved. At the end of Jesus' ministry, in Matthew 24, he gathers his disciples and he's explaining about the, the great tribulation of the saints. And he offers a clue to the timing of the end. No one knows the timing, but he offers a clue. He says in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now, when you hear nations, you can often think Gentiles, right? People who are not Israel, who do not, or outside of the promise of, of God. It says, testimony to all Gentiles, then the end will come. Friends, Satan can no longer deceive all the nations or the Gentiles. There will be people who come to Christ from every people group across the globe. When the gospel goes forth today, there may be some of you here today whose, mind, whose eyes are blinded by the spirit of this age. You do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible would say that there is active forces of evil, spiritual forces of darkness, working against your life so that you would not believe in Christ. But here's what happens to every single one of us who, who comes to Christ. The gospel goes forth. Jesus Christ's name is exalted. We hear and we desire to know more about Christ. There's this, there's this heat or this, this, this conviction that rips our heart and says, Yes, I believe. Satan cannot stop that powerful gospel from changing hearts. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, Remember, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Beloved, this was the message that the church in uh, the first century needed to hear. They were being marginalized, as we are today in America. Right? We're being pushed to the side. And that day they were threatened with loss of job, loss of, of even life. And what did Paul and the rest endure? Hold fast to Christ. It will be worth it in the end. I mean, why do we go and send out all these missionaries? Well, because the word of God is not found. That we can go to Egypt, that we can go to Bulgaria, that we can go to Mexico, that we can go to the deepest parts of, of Asia or Africa with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Satan cannot stop the power of the word of God. He is bound. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ tore the curtain and made a way to God. He made access for us as believers, but not only to us, but to all who repent of their sins and call on the name of Christ for salvation. The day of salvation has come through Christ. Friends, if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, you have not accepted him, can I just tell you, there is hope for you today. I mean, do you feel the conviction of your sin? That, that when you do wrong, do you feel bad about it? That is a God's kind gift to you. Do you know that one day, because of your sin against a holy God, you will have to answer for your sin? That's a terrifying reality. But can I tell you today, you don't have to fear. 
God sent his son to pay your debt. All you must do is turn from your sin and trust in Christ. The biblical word is repent. It's to, to change your mind. If you believe in Christ, you will live. The desire in your heart that is burning, that says yes, that wants to say yes to Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit of God calling you, wooing you to come to him. Do not resist him. Turn to Christ and live. Friends, Jesus has won the victory. Uh, we should have tremendous confidence in the power of God during this age, the age of the church. Because when the gospel goes forth, people will come to Christ. This is why I think this view is, is helpful for us as believers. If we believe that there is power in the gospel now, that Satan is restricted now, would we not have more confidence to talk to the to lady in, in, in a line at Bilo about the gospel of Christ? Wouldn't we have more confidence to, to share Christ with our, with our aging parent or with our, with our grandchildren? Beloved, listen, Satan cannot stop the gospel. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. He may be active, but he cannot stop God's people. And even here it says one day he'll be loosed again. We'll look at that next week. So just a simple question. Do you have confidence in the gospel? The average Christian shares the gospel zero times a year. When was the last time you shared the gospel? When was the last time you went to someone who had, you had no clue whether they were going to be receptive or not, and you said, do you know Jesus? Are you a follower of, of Christ? If you haven't done that in a long time, can I just be honest with you? You may not have confidence in the gospel. You may, you may need to, to check and realize that the word of God is not bound. And when you share it, people will come to Christ. People will come to Christ. Second point and last point. You're welcome. The reigning of the saints. It's never good when you start a sermon. Guys, I'm not sure if you know this, but uh, I, have a, I preach off my iPad, and there's a beep that goes off at 12 o'clock that just says, Sermon Close. Land the plane, Pastor Dave. It's never good when you start your introduction and the beep goes off. So we're going we're gonna to land this thing, okay? The reigning of the saints. The reigning of the saints. So if I think that death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus restricts the power of Satan... Uh, I think it allows the saints to reign with Jesus. Look at verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to, get, to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark or their, on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. John sees thrones and the souls of those who remain faithful unto death, seated on those thrones, reigning with Christ. Forty-two of the forty-six times we see the word throne referenced in Revelation. It refers to a heavenly throne, not an earthly one. The martyrs who were introduced in Revelation chapter 6 after the opening of the fifth seal call out for justice were under the altar in heaven. They are identified there as souls and here as souls. Now some scholars would say that the saints who were reigning are only the martyrs mentioned uh, previously in this book. Other scholars believe that it refers to all the saints who have died in Christ. 
And I, I believe it's the latter. I believe that John is talking about the intermediate state, the present heaven, where Christians go when they die. So when Christians die, we are ushered into the presence of the Lord. We experience the blessed state of the first resurrection in the presence of God. That is why when we are at a funeral, we say that to be absent of the bodies, be present with the Lord. We believe that they are, they are reigning right now with God, those who are dead in Christ. So what do we know that is true of all Christians from this passage? All Christians will reign with Christ. All Christians will come back to life after death. Christians are blessed and holy. Christians will not be, uh, will not face the consequences of the second death. Christians are priests of God and of Christ. We will reign with Christ upon death. That's what the Bible teaches. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 13. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Romans 8.16, the spirit himself bears with it with our spirit, that we are children of God, and the children have been heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we will also be glorified with him. It's a constant theme throughout the scriptures that the, that, of the Bible that the saints will reign with Christ. Now, when I was studying this passage, and I was just looking at Revelation 20, if I read Revelation 20, 1 through 6, I'm going to probably be a premillennial list. Right? Just reading Revelation 20. But if I take into account all of God's Word and my study of all of God's Word and how the day of the Lord is, is talked about in the rest of Scripture, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean more an amillennial view. Which means that right now we're in the age of the church. The thousand years is just a, a round number symbolically telling of an age of an, uh, um, a time of an age or an epoch, right? We are in the, the age of the church, the, the last days, right? The saints are right now reigning with God in heaven. We are already kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Jesus already mentioned that in this book, right? Revelation 1.6, he has made us, the church, a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to the glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.10, you have made them, the church, a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So it says here that blessed are those who experience the first Resurrection, the, the first resurrection and the second death, that's what's being compared here. We all know that we're all going to die. You know, uh, recently I was talking to a friend, and uh, the friend was talking to a coworker about the gospel, and he says, hey, um, tell me about your faith journey. Said, My mission is to cure death. That's not going to work, right? right? No matter how hard we try, how long we age, one day we are going to die. Everybody experiences the first death. But not everyone experiences the blessedness of the first resurrection. Only those who don't know Christ experience the, the second death. So how can we avoid the second death and be one of the blessed of the first resurrection? I think the answer is right there in the text. We will experience the first resurrection and reign with Christ if we stay with Christ. If we abide with Christ. It says that the ones who reign with Jesus are those who keep the word of God, and do not follow the spirit of the age. Have not marked, not been marked by the by the beast. Christians are marked with holiness and righteousness and mercy and grace and compassion and love and trust and faithfulness. We are a people who have died to this world and put our hope in Christ. So how do we keep ourselves in Christ? We obey Him. We do the follow the means of grace that He's given us. We keep we work to keep our hearts firm in Him. One of the means of grace that God has given us is what we are about to experience. 
the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's table, what we're saying is that we believe that we are part of those who experience the first resurrection. That we are not worshiping the, the, the mark of the beast. No, no, we are coming to this table proclaiming, foreshadowing that we will one day eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We come together to break the bread, remembering that Jesus' body was broken for us. We come to, to taste the, take the cup to remind ourselves that Jesus' blood was spilled for us. This is a means of grace to remind you to, to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Everything in this life wants you to, to, to be stained and tainted. But Christ wants us to be holy and righteous unto his name. We come to this table proclaiming the gospel of the cross. That the gospel of the cross has the power to save and redeem lost sinners. Friends, there are many temptations that will come upon the saints. We will be tempted to give our lives to lust or greed. We will be tempted to compromise our faith to work into the government. We'll be tempted to choose people over God, sin over sanctification. But when we come to the Lord's table, we are recommitting ourselves to say no to temptation. No to lust, no to greed, no to compromise, no to people over God. No, we are saying yes to Jesus. This Lord's table is for sinners. But we know it's for a particular kind of sinner, repentant sinners. If you are a baptized believer and a member of good standing of a church of life, faith, and order, you are welcome to the table. And if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to, to refrain from taking the bread, from taking the, the cup. But, but, but while the bread and the cup are passed, think about what Christ offers you. He offers you himself. The Lord, the King of glory, died in your place on a cross to pay for your sins, for the things that you did wrong, to make you a priest of God and to reign with Him forever. The good news of the Gospel is for you today. You can come to Christ today. Consider what God has done for you in Christ. He promises to deliver you from the wrath to come, to make you a people of His own possession. One of the ways we commit ourselves to following God is by committing ourselves to each other, by living out the gospel as members of a church. God desires us to be marked off from the world. So if you are a guest today, again, I want to thank you for being here. We welcome you here. Uh, we, we hope that and pray that your time with us today strengthened you and encouraged you to follow Jesus Christ. What we're going to do now, we haven't done this before, church, but we're going to read our church covenant together. Our church covenant is a promise of how we are going to live. If our statement of faith is what we believe, our, uh, our church covenant is how we desire to live. It's not meant to exclude anyone here, but it's meant to, to bind our body more together. So if you are a member of Park Baptist Church, would you just please stand? Our church covenant is going to be on the screen. I want, I want us to renew our promise with one another. So read along with me our church covenant. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, having been baptized upon our profession of faith,
in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant to each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as, as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek, by divine aid, to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, if we move from this congregation as soon as possible, unite with another like-minded church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Please be seated. I pray when we, when we say those words, it reminds us what we're called to, to live. And I would encourage you, even take, take time this afternoon and, and meditate on those on that covenant we've promised to each other. As we prepare the Lord's table, I pray now that you would prepare your own heart as we take the Lord's Supper. Deacons, please.